0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open them to the book of 1 John. Uh, We're not going to read it just quite yet, but we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. And while you're turning pages, I just want to pray one more time. God, thank you for worship through song. Uh, Lord, thank you that we have opportunities to come here and just meet with you. And thank you that you bless us with, with a knowledge of your presence. You bless us with an understanding from the scriptures of who you are. We don't have to guess at what you're like. We We can read about it. We can find it right here in these pages, and God, for that, we're so thankful. Lord, this morning, would you just let your word shine forth as we seek to magnify Christ through the teaching of the scriptures and worship and fellowship. God, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking each of us one simple question, and it's this. Are you a Christian? And while this may seem like an obvious question for many of us, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said to the church at Corinth, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or you don't, do, you, uh, do you not, well, I can't even speak this morning, or do you not, there we go, whew, that wasn't even tough, this is going to be a long morning, realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. So I'll ask the question again with perhaps a little bit more detail, are you a Christian or is there evidence or fruit in your life that would clearly point to the reality that you belong to? to God, that you were born of God, or as Paul just said, that Jesus Christ is in you. Take a listen to a couple of verses of what the Bible says about Christians and the salvation process. In Second Corinthians 5.17, a verse that maybe some of you guys are familiar with, we read this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So in light of that, we can ask ourselves, have you been made a new creation? Is this evident in your life? Are you different? Am I different than I once was? Already in First John, we were asked if we make a practice of righteousness or make a practice of sinning. Or if we walk in the light or if we walk in the dark. We can ask ourselves that question, right? Do we walk in the light, or are we walking in darkness? In our life, do we see a pattern of of behavior that's ultimately obedience to Christ, or are we so in love with the world that we're not concerned with righteousness or light at all? Or what about this? Jesus said these things, these are tough to swallow. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So from there, I ask the question, let me ask you this, do you have a desire, and we'll get into this more later, do you have a desire to keep the commandments of Christ? Are you chiefly concerned with obedience to Jesus and his word? And more on that topic next week's text, I don't want to give it away for for Paul, so it steals his thunder, but it says that the commandments are not burdensome to the believer. And it's another question we can ask ourselves, are the commandments of God burdensome to us, or as the psalmist so frequently says, are, are the commandments, the laws, the statutes of God a delight to us? Do we rejoice in them? There are many other examples laid before us in Scripture, providing a clear picture of what it means to be a Christian and to show us what a Christian looks like. In other words, these, what we've just went through, and many more, are biblical marks of a genuine Christian. And listen, let me just clear something up. This is not This is not because... There are certain elite-level human beings that possess within themselves the ability and the drive and the grit to produce this kind of obedience, zeal, and love in and of themselves. On the contrary, these are marks of a genuine Christian because God said they would be. And these evidences in the life of a person is proof that they have been saved by God and loved by God, redeemed by God, and are therefore counted as his children, and if children, heirs. The possession of this fruit that we're speaking of, these evidences, is not and was never dependent on the person and their ability to conjure it up and do all the right things, obey all the right commandments and be good enough. Here's the reality is that salvation is a gift from God. And it's a gift from God that comes apart from anything we can do. This is Gospel 101. Romans 4 elaborates on this as it dismantles the idea that works play any role in the salvation equation. It says this, and I quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's us, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's clear as day, folks. You didn't earn salvation. The gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins are not the wages that you've earned because of your works. They are a gift from God, again, who justifies the ungodly by grace through faith only. Romans 4.16, in that same chapter, he's on the same topic. If you read down a little bit more, it says, That is why it, speaking of salvation, depends on faith... In order that the promise may rest on grace, and here's the good news, and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And that's incredible news, right? God saves. That's why we're all in this room, because somewhere along the line in our journey, we ran into the freight train that is God and we said, Wow, there's no way I can go on living how I've lived previously. I'm different, I'm changed. God alone saves. And this is so important for us to know in light of our sermon, our text, today. And not only this, we not only see that salvation rests on grace and therefore can be guaranteed, but all throughout Scripture we see promises from God that speak of what He's going to continue to do in the life of a believer. And these are the marks of a genuine Christian when and after he saves them. So, when I ask you to examine yourself, it's kind of a tough question to ask. I'm not asking you, just to clarify one more time, I'm not asking you to see whether you're good enough to be considered a follower of Christ. That's not it. I'm asking you to see whether you've trusted in Christ, grace alone, faith alone, And to see whether God has done in you all the things that he's promised to do in the lives of every single person that belongs to him. So with that in mind, I figured it'd be helpful to kind of go back to those first verses we talked about at the beginning um, and provide some commentary on them in light of what we've just heard. The first verse we said was, "If, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Okay, let's talk about that. If you've been born again, you have been made a new creation. And this is a 180 degree turn. Biblically, we hear that the old you is dead and the new you is alive. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you have new desires, new passions, and new delights, all of which come from God. Ezekiel 36 states this perfectly in speaking about the new covenant. God says, ultimately, I'm going to take the heart of stone out of your chest. I'm going to give you a new heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. If you've never read Ezekiel 6 or 36, please do. If you've been changed, then it's evidence that that surgery, that heart surgery has been done in you. The next thing we looked at are uh, the passages in 1 John that we've already read about walking in light, making a practice of righteousness. Mike Robinson taught on this a couple weeks ago. He did a great job of kind of helping us live in that tension because there's tension there. But the reality is this. It states it clearly. If you've been born of God and have his seed in you, then you will walk in the light and you will make a practice of righteousness. Again, there's no mystery in this. It's not based on a sliding scale, measuring your works. If there are more good works than bad works, that means that you have attained the status of Christian. No, First John 3, 9 provided the clearest answer we could wish to have. It said, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. In other words, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because they've been born of God. Them being born of God is the very reason why it's impossible. That word cannot means they're not able. They don't have the power. They cannot practice sinning in the same way that someone who doesn't belong to Christ does. It just won't happen. And just a reminder too, like this doesn't mean you're perfect, right? Mike laid that out. We're reading this in context of everything we've read so far. And he says, no, do I still sin every day? Yes. But that word there, practice, was the key. Practicing righteousness or practicing sinning. There's been a fundamental shift in who we are, so much so that Christians who have been born of God are unable to continue to walk in sin the way that they once did. And lastly, we talked about the topic of loving God and keeping his commandments. The, the three things that Jesus said and the text in 1 John. And this is hopefully for all of us in here, this is obvious, that the Christian, because of what happened upon conversion, loves the commandments of God. They hate when they stumble and sin. They hate when they stumble and sin though they still sin, their desire is to do god 's will. Let me put it this way to bring perhaps more clarity i 'll just ask a question, right You guys can answer in your head. Have you ever met an unregenerate person who rejoiced in or delighted in the statutes of God? Have you ever met a non-believer who said that the commandments of God were not? burdensome the answer no you have not why because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to god the unrepentant sinner is indeed so in love with this world that they're at enmity with god The law of God, instead of rejoicing in that law, is actually repulsive to the non-believer because the Bible says that they're dead in sin and therefore have zero desire to do anything that God says, let alone worship him through acts of obedience. And so... Concluding this first part of our teaching, if you're different than you once were, if you delight in God's law, if His law is not a burden to you, if you make a practice of righteousness, these are some of the evidences that you are a Christian. And in our text this morning, 1 John 4, 7 through 21, among other things, we're given four more evidences of what it looks like, what it means to be born of God. And as we study these, we're going to see that each of these as well find their origin in God. Just like the ones we've already mentioned, we're going to see how they came to be apparent in our lives. And we're going to examine why why seeing these fruits matters in the life of a person and in regards to our text, particularly for the day of judgment. So would you read with me? Let's read the whole text together. 1 John 4 verse 7. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As we've just seen, you know, our, our passage today begins with an exhortation that if you guys have have been around for any amount of time the last few weeks in 1 John, should not be unfamiliar to you as it's been given approximately, by my count, I'm not good at math, four times already in this letter alone. And it's the exhortation, beloved, let us love one another. I don't presume to know what was going on in this church, what kind of relational tension there was, what kind of strife there was. But I, I'm just going to assume that the church or churches that, that eventually read this letter that John's writing to, uh, for them, that they're just like us. They're similar to ours, right? For each of us, there's good weeks and bad weeks. Sometimes we're in a great mood, and sometimes we're in a not-so-great mood. If this was high school, I probably would have used a different word there. I was filtering. Filter, that's good. Pissy? Pissy's not a bad word. Anyways, Okay. Right? When you come to church, or some, some weeks you and your friends are, are seeing eye to eye and you're agreeing on things and everything's just awesome and you're like, oh, this is how heaven's gonna be. And then, and then other weeks you see each other and you're like, this is horrendous. Well, how can you possibly believe that that's the way that whatever the government should work? I just like, you get in arguments and disagreements. I'm assuming that this church was much like ours in that way, but through it all, we, like the church, here are called to love one another. To love one another. And and we can tell by the repetition, John, and thus the Lord, were very serious about this encouragement to love. In fact, as we've already learned, it is to be a mark of a true Christian. It is to be the mark of a true Christian. Why? Well, if you read on to the next verse, it, it explains why. It says, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, how is it that John can be so confident that Christians will love? And he answers it he says, because this love is from God, He's the source. He's the originator. He's the author. And if Christians have really been born of God and know God, then they've not only experienced this perfect love of God for themselves, but also that very love has been placed in them supernaturally in the conversion process, that that new heart that we talked about in Ezekiel 36, and is being lived out by the Spirit of God inside the believer. And we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit later. Right? Jesus looks to his disciples and he said, they're going to know you by your love for one another. Love. The first fruit of the Spirit, if you know that list, or you sang the kids' songs in the kids' wing back in the day, the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned is love. love. Thank you. And before we move on from this, I, I just want to explain... Uh, just what type of love this is, because I think it's important. And, and as some of you who've maybe been studying the Bible or sitting in a Bible teaching for a long time, you may have guessed that this love spoken of in our text and this love mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is none other than agape love. And, and if you're new to this whole thing, let me explain a little bit. Perhaps you've heard this before, but, but while we read our English Bibles... Hopefully we have a good Bible translation. You're surely going to come across the word love many, many times. And the word love in our language has unfortunately been cheapened a bit as we use the same word to describe both our affections for pizza and ice cream and cookies as we do our affections for our spouses and our kids. Seems odd, Right? In the Greek, though, which is the language the New Testament was primarily written in, there are actually four different words for love. C.S. Lewis wrote an awesome book on this, I hear. But all four of these words are translated L-O-V-E in our Bibles. But they're vastly different. I want to walk through these for a little bit. First is philos or phileo. This is a brotherly love displayed in, in close Friendships, thus the nickname for the city Philadelphia, which I'm pretty sure is a lie. The city of brotherly love. I only know one person from Philadelphia, and she is a hoot. Let me tell you, hardcore. She's awesome. Next, we have Eros, which comes uh, from which comes our word erotic, it is passionate or sexual love by God's design to be displayed in covenant marriage between a man and a woman and next up we have storge this is like affectionate love like a a love you might have for a family member perhaps or or John Piper in in explaining storge even mentioned that this love would be used kind of to describe the love that you have for an old dog that you just don't want to let go or perhaps an old sweater even and then lastly you have agape agape and I quote the most powerful most noble type of love. It's a sacrificial love. It's an act of the will. Seeking the good of others at a cost to oneself. That's agape love. It's been said that this agape love, this word agape, it it really is a biblically rooted word. In other words, it didn't really exist before God chose to reveal himself to his people in the scriptures. And, And in our text, we see this revelation exceedingly clearly when we read that God is agape. God is love. In other words, agape is a fundamental characteristic of who God is. And as we read on in our passage, we're going to find that the that sacrificial, selfless, seeking the benefit of others type of love was clearly seen in God the Father sending His Son into the world and ultimately offering up as a propitiation or a substitute to die in our place for our sin. Would you read verses 9 and 10 with me? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John, I love it. He says, hey, God is love. And then he says, you want proof? You want evidence? Look at Jesus and look at the cross. Church, you and I did not deserve to be loved, yet he acted. The price to love us was incredibly high, and yet he still paid it. The good shown to us because of this love is eternal life in God, and knowing God himself, which is absolutely astounding. And then then to top it all off, God doesn't just put up with us, as some of us, I'm sure, have the habit of thinking, we're like, ah, God is forced to love me because I'm such a screw up and he just loves me because he has to. No, that's not true. The Bible says that he rejoices over us with singing and gladness. The reality is that he loves to save and he loves to love us. So before we move on, I just want to put this before you and say, church, if you've forgotten the love that God has for you, My encouragement would be from this passage of Scripture to preach the cross to yourself. I don't know how many of you guys do that, but preaching to yourself is is so incredibly important. When you're down in the dumps and you can't get out of your own head and you're just wrestling with thoughts that you, you don't really want to have or you're stuck in a rut, preach to yourself. I was just reading this, this book, the intro to the book. J.I. Packer was talking about what he's learned from the, the Puritans. You've probably heard the Puritans, these believers that lived in this this uh, well this era, and, and they're incredible, right? He says they're spiritual giants, and one of the things he learned from them is they said, ultimately, when you're in a rut, right, basically transform yourself into your favorite preacher and, and act like them and preach to yourself the truth. It is so important. So preach a cross to yourself, remember Jesus, because it's there again at the cross, the agape love of God was on full display. And I just want to pause for a second and just ask, please, this morning, be reminded of God's love for you. If you're anything like me, if you're anything like a lot of pastors that I've talked to over over the years, right? It's easy for us to proclaim God's love for somebody else. Like, I believe God's love for other people 100% beyond the shadow of a doubt, but for some reason, when it comes to accepting and receiving that love for myself, it's hard. It's hard. So therefore, that need to, to remember these things and to preach that truth to ourself. And then to close out, the first section, we'll read verses 11 through 12 and it just says, and if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God and if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us, and, and I mentioned four evidences at first that we're going to see in our text. And at the end of verse 12, right there is number one. It says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He basically says the same thing in verse 7. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This love seen clearly in God has been poured out on us and thus we too can and should walk in that love if we are his. So we move on to verse 13, we immediately see evidence number two that we've been born of God. And it just says, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And I hope you notice the common language, right? If we know that we abide in Him and He in us, right above this, beloved, if... Uh, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This, this theme of abiding, abiding in God and God in us is all over 1 John. We see that language in our text as well. But right here, I want to pause to look at this because this is huge. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. Acts chapter 2, one of the, one of the coolest chapters in, in Acts because you see the church begin to explode. But the Holy Spirit comes upon those waiting in the upper room. They're praying. And then eventually, Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost in front of thousands of people. And he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children. And all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And this might seem obvious if you've been a Christian for a while, but but I'll just lay it out there, right? Pre Christ, pre-salvation, you and I did not have the Holy Spirit. We were dirty, sinful, wicked, opposed to God. And though the Spirit was no doubt around us because God is everywhere, He was not in you. But now, the Bible says that things have changed, right? You and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. He actually indwells the believer. Christ is in us, and He is the hope of glory. And just as Peter said, this is obviously a gift. And this happens at salvation, guys, and and I know I'm hammering this point home, but this further reminding us that, that the miracle of what happens upon conversion cannot be diminished or belittled. It was a cataclysmic event, and during this event, The Holy Spirit of God took residence in you. And in case you didn't know, in case I forgot, right, this changes everything. Or at least it should change everything. Listen to Romans 8 as we continue speaking of the Spirit. It says, for all, you don't have to turn there, by the way, I'll just read it. If you want Romans 8, 14 through 16, but by the time you flip there, I'll probably be done reading it. But it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And not only that, but as we read in Ephesians 1, if we can keep going forever, the Holy Spirit is the seal. The Bible tells us, ultimately sealing our souls for Christ. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, the Spirit is like the pledge, the down payment, showing that the blood of Christ has purchased us and covered us, that we belong to the Father and that we will be glorified with Christ one day. And again, I could go on for hours. It's just scratching the surface of the, the person, the work, the role of the Holy Spirit. But, but I hope you get my point. The transformation from no Holy Spirit to Holy Spirit in us is beyond remarkable. It changes absolutely Everything And therefore, verse 13, again, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. This brings us to our next evidence that one's been born of God and this one in particular has been discussed a few times in our study in 1 John this far, but I will mention it again. So verses 14 and 15 is where we see that. If you're still in 1 John, you can read that with me. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god god abides in him and he in god there's our common language again it goes without saying right this this confession is of utmost importance when one determining uh, who a false teacher who is a false teacher and who's of the truth we looked at that right at the beginning of 1 John chapter 4. We read to test the spirits. But also this confession, a genuine confession is necessary for salvation and is a gift from God as well and thus evidence that you belong to him. Consider what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16. Maybe you know the story. Right? Jesus is talking to his disciples and he goes, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? And they start to answer, they're like, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah. And then Jesus, as he often does, turns it right on them and just asks them the most important pointed question of all. And he says, yeah, 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 but, but who do you say that I am? And do any of you guys remember Peter's response to this? He said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And in saying that, what does he do? He confesses Jesus as the Son of God just as our text in First John says. And, and for those of you who know the story, maybe, maybe this coming to mind, if you remember Jesus' response, it's quite shocking. He says this, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, But my Father who is in heaven. Right there, we we see clearly that this truth had been revealed by the Father. The Father had done something in Peter's heart that enabled him to see the reality that Jesus is Lord and ultimately make the confession that he's the Son of God. The Father was at work here. And Jesus actually re-emphasized this in John chapter 6 when he said, and I quote, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that same exact truth applies to us. If you've seen the glory of Christ If you've confessed Jesus as Lord, then you too, like Peter, have been drawn by the Father, given this revelation by the Father. And it is indeed evidence that we belong to God. And again, this might seem obvious, but this confession is is a mark of a genuine Christian. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17, leading to our last Worlds. And, and here's the fourth and, and final evidence we'll see in our text today or that at least we'll address is, is those last words in, in verse 17. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. What can this mean? Well, first of all, right, let's look at a couple examples. Jesus called himself the light of the world. And then when he's speaking to his disciples, he actually tells them that they are the lights of the world. We are ambassadors for Christ, representatives of the king and his kingdom here on earth. He's living in and through us and, and this is what we're going to focus on mostly for the sake of this morning, he is sanctifying us day by day, bit by bit. And through this process of sanctification, we begin to look, love, act, and live more like Jesus in this world. First, because of the transformation that happened when we repented and turned from sin and trusted Christ, but also by sanctification. Listen to this verse. This is a power verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 simply says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. I don't know about you guys, I was there at one point, but you often hear young people, young Christians, like 17, 18, 19 years old, with so much angst, and they're just sitting there going, I just want to know the will of God for my life, I just want to know what he wants me to do. And then most of the time it paralyzes them in fear, because they don't know where to start. And then next time you hear that from a young angsty person, you can be like, hey, calm down, I'll tell you one thing. One part of his will is this, he wants you to be Holy. He's going to sanctify you. I'll I'll go one step further. Not only does He want you to be holy, but He's going to make you holy. Through discipline, because you're His son or daughter, through suffering, through service, through time in His Word, through worship, through times of plenty, and through times of lack. The Bible tells us that God is going to refine us for His glory. Day after day, he's going to chip away and chisel away until what remains is of him. Until what remains is of him. And while this requires partnership and effort on our part, it too is a gift from God. This is something that God has promised to do. And we read that again in Romans 8. If you want to write down to go back later, Romans 8, 29 through 30. It says this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Listen, if God has called you to himself, if he's saved you, if if you've been justified and adopted into the fold, then this is what God promises to do. He says, look, I will sanctify you. I have predestined you to be conformed to the image of my son. And at the end of that passage in Romans 8, he says, I will bring you to glory. In other words a verse that perhaps all of us are familiar with it says he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ he will do it and this is where we return to our original question of are we a christian this is why we exhorted you to examine yourself to see whether in you're in the faith or, or not because unfortunately and you can read about this in the scriptures multiple times but unfortunately there are many people even in churches this morning across our country and the world that think that they're saved that think that they're Christians but are actually not. A lot of times it's because people have told them that hey, to gain favor with Christ you have to earn your way there. That's not the gospel. That's not true. Or or maybe somebody when they were eight years old like prayed a prayer and nothing in their life has shown any evidence that they belong to God, that they care about his statutes, that they love like God, that they have the spirit and and, and I'm nervous for that person. And, And what I'm not telling you to do is go around being fruit sniffers, okay? Like go to your friends and be like, hey bro, I saw you drinking that beer. Are you a Christian? Apparently not. You better step up your game. You know, like that's not what I'm telling you to do. Although biblical accountability is definitely something that we should be taking part in. But but here's the reality, right? If you think you've been saved by works, anything outside of grace, if you don't have evidence of agape love in your life, if there's no fruit of the Spirit evident in your life, if you cannot say that God is chiseling away at you and you're growing in holiness, whether that be really slow or really fast, it's just I'm just talking about growing in holiness. Then perhaps, if those things are true of you, then perhaps this warning is for you. Perhaps you need to sit in this for a little bit because He, he has said in His Word that these will be the genuine marks of His children. Everyone who has been born. Of God. And whether you're a Christian or not, fundamental teaching of the Scriptures is of utmost importance as we move into the last few verses of our text because we're about to read about the judgment day, the day of judgment, otherwise called the great and terrible day of the Lord in the Scriptures. So if you'd read verses 17 and 18 with me as we kind of move on to the next portion of our morning. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Before we dive into this idea of confidence and, and fear, I do want to take some time to talk about the day of judgment that's referenced here. On this day, the Bible is clear that every single person who has ever lived will stand before the throne of Christ and give an account of For the things that they've done in the flesh, whether good or evil. Revelation 20 tells us that that books are going to be opened on this day containing our deeds as as well as the Lamb's book of life. And the dead are to be judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And this is where it gets really intense. On this day, there's going to be a great division. Division. On one side, there's, there's going to be Christians who have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Forgiven and saved by grace through faith. And those Christians, because of Jesus and His finished work, are going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God to spend eternity with Him and His people in the place that He's making for us right now. And, and on the other side are going to be those who have willfully rejected Jesus. Jesus who are in love with the present world, who detest God and all that He is. And the Bible is abundantly clear in Revelation chapter 20. It says that ultimately their end is that they are going to be thrown into what the Bible calls a lake of fire. A lake of fire. This is what we call hell. Right, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and where people are receiving, listen, the just punishment for their rebellion against their Maker and their Savior. That's the day of judgment that John's talking about. And there's no doubt that this day is going to come. But listen, you can be in one of two camps when it comes to thinking about the coming day of the Lord and the coming judgment of Christ. He says this, if you are a Christian and you absolutely have zero reason to fear... Because the perfect love of God has cast out all fear in regards to punishment. And they are righteous and perfected again because of the finished work of Christ. All the wrath of God all that we deserve was poured out on Christ. He paid it all. He was the propitiation, the substitute for us. So that when we stand before God, I am going to be scared. Scared, but there's no reason for me to fear. I only say I'm going to be scared because in, John, or in Revelation chapter 1, John, who spent time with Jesus on earth, was like his really good friend, saw Jesus, and he was so crazy that he fell over as if dead. So that's probably going to be me I'm like, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, faint. Who knows? It's going to be a crazy thing, but as far as punishment goes, as far as damnation goes, I can stand before God with boldness, not because of anything I've done, but because God has done a magnificent work in me because of grace. Grace, And so we can stand there as Christians and say, no, the perfect love of God, the the love that I've come to know and to believe, has actually expelled, cast out all fear from me so that I know with 100% certainty that when I stand before God, I'm going to be ushered into His kingdom. But listen... For those of you perhaps in this room or listening online that, that have yet to cry out to Jesus to save them, trusting in his death and resurrection, if, if that's you, then please hear me. The reality is this, that you have only two fear. The Bible says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul, when he's when he's talking about this judgment day, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In other words, what happens there is going to be so scary and terrifying for those who are outside of Christ that we're compelled by God's love and when we seek to persuade others because the reality is that we don't want anybody to face that judgment and face that wrath even if it be just our desire is for people to come to know the lord to be saved so they don't have to experience the full wrath of god so we persuade others and guys that's exactly why i'm up here telling you this right now because our desire everybody in every christian in this room our desire is for you to come to know Christ. So what would I tell you to do, right? The Bible says that you can repent. A 180 turn of direction, a change of heart that leads to a change of action, saying, no, no, all right, I'm done with my old life. I'm turning from my sin, and I'm gonna to turn to Jesus and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection ascension. And you turn to Christ, and then you'll know the love that we're speaking of. You'll know the love Of which John speaks when he says we've come to know and believe the love of God that he has for us. And here's the cool part, guys. If you do turn to Christ with a humble heart, genuine repentance, placing all of your faith in nothing but him, in him alone, in his finished work, and everything we've talked about up to this point, all all the the true markers of a Christian you'll see in your life, Right? He will give you a new heart. You're like, Dude, I don't, I don't desire Christ at all. Like, I know that the Bible tells us it's going to happen if you're not in Christ, but you you turn to Christ and He'll actually perform that heart surgery we talked about in Ezekiel 36. He'll give you a new heart. You'll confess gladly that Jesus is the Son of God. Even if you've spent 60 years never confessing that Jesus is the Son of God and making fun of Christians, God will do a work in your heart where you're like, Oh, I see it. I see the glory. I've been blinded for so long. Jesus is the Son of God. And then, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father will sanctify you and chip away and chisel away until you die making you more like Christ, preparing you for glory with Him. So the question then for for all of us, right, on this day, will we stand in confidence knowing that Christ is your King because you're confident in the work that God's done, what He's promised to do, or will you be trembling in fear because you don't know Him and you've willfully rejected Him? Let's move on to the last couple verses in our text and uh, we're almost done here, guys. Verses 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I have yet to read that correctly one time in the whole time I've been studying for this. I thought I was going to come in the clutch this morning, but it did not happen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Look, as we we read this last two verses, these last two verses, three verses of our text, and we see that once you've come to know and believe the love that God has for you and and you're sure of the salvation that God has given you and you know what Christ has done in your life and your heart, really the only option is to love. You love because he first loved you. You get to love because he first loved you. In worship and in response to all he's done for you and all he is, you love because he first loved you. In other words, as a Christian, you've experienced the agape love of God personally, so now you can go love as Christ has commanded As a Christian, you've you've been empowered and born again, so now you can go love as Christ has commanded us to love. And then again, as a Christian, you've been given His Spirit, so now you can go love as Christ has commanded us to love. And if you're anything like me, you like to ask questions of the text. And one of the questions I thought of is is this. Like, if love is is who we are now because God is love and we've been born of him and his seed is in us, then, then why the constant exhortation from John to love? And I only had to think about this for a second. For any of us that are accustomed to the behavior and stubbornness of human beings, this exhortation should come as no surprise. For one, we've all known Christians who at times were not acting in the love to which they've been called. And then we can flip that and face it right back at ourselves and say the reality is that we've all been the Christians who have not loved as we've been called to love. So in conclusion, Jess, Teresa, you guys can come back up. We're going to worship some more. But part of the reason for this, people not walking in love, is that I believe we have a tendency to forget who we are in Christ. We have a tendency to forget our true identity. And what we've been talking about all morning, right? We have a tendency to forget what happened upon our conversion and and how awesome that was and what the implications of that are. It's huge. And thus, to finish our text today... After John reinforces the reality of our identity, he encourages us to walk it out. Walk and live in your identity. Or to put it in familiar terms, right? Walk in light and be loved because that is who you are if you're a child of God. And for every ounce of love that seeps from your life as a result of what God's done in you, all the glory will go to the triune God Almighty. Would you pray with me? God, as we consider the things that you have done, my hope is that it would leave us in awe. There's no way I could save myself. The chasm was far too wide. But Lord, you did it. I was so sinful and wicked. There's no way that I could scrub myself clean. But you said, no, I'm going to do the work for you. And I'm going to impute my righteousness to you. And forgive you of your sin. And now, Lord, as a Christian, I'm, I'm washed clean. You did that. The reality is this, God. You've changed absolutely everything. And you get all the credit and the glory for it. We're just people. I'm still amazed that you would choose to use us, Lord. But you do, and for that we're grateful. Lord, in this time as we consider how to love others, we consider your great love for us. We just pray that... Uh, you would allow our hearts to just be open Lord to glorify your name as we sing praises and we pray this in Jesus name